Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Tennessee this week. Hey, Nicole, are you from Tennessee? Why? Because you're the only 10 I see. Uh, <laughs> that's excellent. Oh, I know. I love cheesy pickup lines. I love Tennessee. It's one of my favorite states. I've never been there. <gasps> oh, you'd love it. I know I would. I've been there a couple times, and each time I go, I want to stay longer and go back. Like, you know, some people are like, oh, I could snowbird in Florida. I'm like, I would, I would snowbird in Tennessee. Tennessee is actually a pretty cool state from everything that I know of it. Yeah, it's very pretty. Um, admittedly, I've only really explored northern Tennessee, like Knoxville. Yeah. Area, Dollywood, Gatlinsburg, all that fun Oh, that's stuff. right. Dollywood. Because mm-hmm. I was like, everybody in this video that I watch sounds like Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> So I do have some fun facts about the great state of Tennessee to share with you, because I know you love fun facts. I do love fun facts. Uh, its capital is Nashville. That's fun. That is the music fun. city. Uh, its name Tennessee originates from the Yolchi Native American word Tennessee, which means meeting place. Okay. Um, I actually think I may have known that. I'm not sure though, but it sounds familiar. That's fair. That's fair. Its state bird is the mockingbird. Well, that's cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, its nickname is the Volunteer State. I've heard that before. Um, what other fun things about Tennessee? I wonder where they get some of these like state nicknames from sometimes. I feel like the Volunteer State nickname does have an origin. And I don't know if it's tied to like the Tennessee Valley Authority. Mm-hmm. Or if it was tied to something like Civil War related. Yeah. But I know there is like a history behind it, but I didn't have time to look it up. Next week, though. Next week. I'll All come right. back with a fun fact. Uh, Tennessee is tied for the title of the state with the most borders. State with Yeah, I guess it does. So Tennessee and Missouri are two states that touch eight other states. Eight. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... It kind of like stretches weird. Like Tennessee is like a very long, long yeah. state, yeah. So I could definitely see that. Tennessee has 10 state songs, which kind of makes sense if Nashville's ten. there. Yeah, 10. So some states have like one or two. And Tennessee is 10. They are <laughs> in order of adoption. 1925, my homeland, Tennessee. 1935, when it's Iris time in Tennessee. Iris is the state flower of Tennessee. Oh, okay. 1955, my Tennessee. 1965, Tennessee Waltz, which I'm actually familiar with. 1982, Rocky Top. 92, a song called Tennessee. 96, The Pride of Tennessee. Also in 96, the Tennessee Bicentennial Rap. Oh, wow. There's a rap. Yeah, state song. That's pretty cool. 2010, they adopted Smoky Mountain Rain. And 2012, the song Tennessee. So That's a very creative name. I know. I mean, it kind of sums it up, right? Tennessee is the birthplace of the tow truck, which was created in Chattanooga in 1916. Great. They can pay my towing bill then that I have to pay. <laughs> they might volunteer for it. <laughs> hey. This is kind of interesting. So when you think about like homes that are the most visited in the countries, the number one like home is the White House. Of course. And number two is Graceland. So Elvis Presley's oh, mansion yeah. has like, Graceland. Oh, yeah, in 2016, it celebrated its 20 millionth visitor. That's a crazy amount of people. That is. Um, of all the southern states, Tennessee provided the most soldiers to the Union during the Civil War. Over 31,000 Tennesseans joined the federal forces. Wow. And that's not something I expect. Yeah. 
Yeah, considering Tennessee probably had, aside from Virginia, the most Civil War battles were fought in Tennessee. Absolutely. Also, I think you'll enjoy this. Guess what the state animal is in Tennessee? And it's not the Tennessee walker horse. Okay, what is it? The raccoon. Oh, nice. I love raccoons, (laughs) except when they shit on my roof. So that's some fun facts about Tennessee. So I have some fun facts as well. Well, not fun facts, but fun Florida man that we got um, a request to do. Oh, awesome. I love requests. All right. The first Florida man that we have by request is for December 20th. And it's Florida man who marooned himself on a lake fountain says he took too much MDMA and wanted to be with the swans. Well, (laughs) a lake fountain? Yes. Here's a picture of it. Yeah, I mean it's not so very it's like, far from land. So it's like I one of don't... those fountains that people put in like the middle of lakes to like keep the water moving. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you can see the buildings and the trees and like the land from where the fountain is. It's not far at all. He wanted to be one with the swans. A man who allegedly stole a swan boat and marooned himself on a fountain in the middle of a Florida lake told police that he took a large quantity of MDMA and wanted to be with the swans that frequent the lake. According to an Orlando police report obtained by Orlando Weekly, 36-year-old Kyle Thurston said he wanted to be with the swans because they don't judge him. He wanted to be king of the swans. (laughs) At about 4 a.m. Friday, Orlando police came to Lake Eola and found Thurston sitting on the fountain screaming for help. (laughs) Police said Thurston forgot to tie up the swan boat and it drifted off while he was on the fountain. When he returned to where he thought the boat would be and realized it was gone, he sat down on the fountain and started calling for help, police said. Orlando police are following up with the rental boat company to see if any charges will be filed. Oh, my God. (laughs) Then we also had a request for Jerry Blank from Strangers with Candies, Florida man. (laughs) And since she is just so crazy, we already know she stole the TV. We're going to do... Two Florida men for her, both Amy Sedaris's birthday and also the day that the show first took place because we have no idea when the fictional character's birthday actually is. Fair enough, fair enough. So April 7th, which is the day the show first aired, Florida man says his turtle army will destroy everyone. <laughs> That's so perfect for Strangers with It candy. really is, too. There was a turtle on the show, too, wasn't there? Yes. Her pet turtle, Shelly. Shelly, yes. And Shelly died at a party or something. Yes. Oh, God. Okay. A Florida man was arrested after he allegedly told employees and customers at several businesses in India Atlantic, Florida. I don't know where that is. That his turtle army will destroy them and they will all see what would happen in an hour on April 7th. Because that's how long it takes the turtle army to get marching. I I guess. (laughs) I feel like that's an army you could very easily avoid by just walking away. Exactly. Yes. According to the arrest affidavit... 61-year-old Thomas Devaney Lane visited several businesses around Fifth Avenue before making his way to the India Atlantic Police Department, where he began yelling at a dispatcher while pounding the walls and glass. Lane left the police department and police later caught up with him in the parking lot of a 7-Eleven convenience store. Lane called 911 and told the operator that the responding officer needed to leave now or you will all be sorry you fucked with a saint turtle saint a turtle saint apparently well that's just crazy and now amy sedaris's birthday florida man believed he was half man half dog during fatal attack doctors say 
Oh my goodness. Again, that's pretty Jerry Blank. Yes, yes it is. A forensic psychologist says a former college student believed he was half man, half dog when he fatally attacked a man and woman at their homes and was found biting one of their faces. Oh my God. Uh, Maybe he was smoking K2. Maybe. That definitely sounds like a freaking zombie cannibal murder. God. The Palm Beach Post reports Dr. Philip Resnick made a conclusion in a 38-page mental health report released this week by the Martin County State Attorney's Office. Investigators say they found Austin, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that last name, now 22, biting John Stevens's face while making growling noises. Oh my god, that almost sounds like a like lycanthropy it's attack in a weird, weird. way. Yeah, okay. That well, was not a fun Florida man, that was a terrifying... That's a terrifying Florida man. Is that setting the tone for your story? Uh, no one bites anyone's face off. Okay, good. That Ooh. I remember. Disaster averted. I do have a good story, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was very interesting. And um, also, I do believe that this episode might be cursed, guys, just so you know. Um, because both mine and Nicole's computers had issues this week when trying to do our notes. But we got the stories together and pulled it off. Yes, Nicole's computer is still working. Mine, however, has a fan that's dying, so I'm not even supposed to turn it on right now, according to my one friend who does IT stuff. So anyway, let's dive right in. My story for this week takes place in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. It's pretty much smack dab in the middle of the state of Tennessee and is in Rutherford County, as well as being the county seat. It's in the Nashville metropolitan area, but is a reasonably large city in and of itself at nearly 62 square miles and having a population of nearly 109,000 as of the 2010 census, making it the 188th largest city in the U.S. by population. That's pretty big. Yeah, it's huge. It was even the state capital from 1818 to 1926, and it was also ranked by Money Magazine as the 19th best city to live in in um, 2018. This is an interesting city as it is home to something odd, which is always fun. The world's largest cedar bucket. What? Yeah. A you know bucket how, made out of cedar? Yeah. <laughs> you know how states just have like weird things like the largest ball of twine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's like that. Just something to get people to go there and see. I wonder what you would use a cedar bucket for. I don't know. Uh, bathtub maybe? I don't know. There's also a place called Cannonsburg Village, which is a pioneer town depicting what it was like to live in the 1830s to 1930s. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And if this dust storm that's supposed to be coming our way shows up, we'll know all about what it's like to live in the West in the 1930s soon. (laughs) There's also a lot of parks in the area, Barfield Crescent Park being huge at 430 acres. Wow. The city is also home to several museums and a lot of music festivals. I know that when most people think of Nashville and the surrounding area, they think of country music, but surprisingly enough, the area is also known to be a great place for rock as well, which is pretty cool, I think, because it's about time that we had a resurgence of good rock music, because rock is pretty much dead right now, I feel. Yeah, true. Plus, they do Bonnaroo every year in Tennessee, so it does have a healthy music scene outside of Nashville. Well, a lot of the country artists' children are taking to rock music. Makes sense. everybody, Everybody has to rebel sometimes. Exactly. It's also about time for me to get done with this intro and into my story. All right, let's do it. This is the murder of Laura Salmon. Although her last name is spelled like salmon, she is definitely not a fish. She's a person. 
She was born on October 6, 1965, and was unfortunately only 18 at the time of her death on May 31, 1984. Mm. On the day of her death, there was a farmer just doing his daily routine when he noticed something while cutting the grass. When he got a little closer, he found Laura's body lying there in nothing but a bra and covered with a jacket and two pairs of jeans. Weird. Yeah. And freaking disturbing. Very much so. The sleeve of the jacket was wrapped around her neck, and she was clutching her underwear in her hand. As far as the two pairs of jeans go, one of them were her jeans, and the other were men's jeans. The area she was found in was known as a spot where teenagers and high school students, I mean, college students, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, would like to, you know, get jiggy with it, as Will Smith would say. So like a lover's lane. It was pretty much a lover's lane of sorts. Uh, They would also go there to party and have bonfires. Okay. She was later identified as Laura Salmon, and an autopsy was performed. Blunt force trauma to the head was determined to be the cause of death, and the suspected murder weapon was a rock found near her body. Obviously, with the way the body was found and with her being naked other than a bra, the police had to wonder if she'd been raped. Fair, fair. During the autopsy, the medical examiner found evidence that sex had taken place, but it was found to be consensual rather than rape as there wasn't any internal bruising or any tearing commonly found with forcible rape. Okay. When they used, I'm assuming, luminol or something similar on the genes, they found semen on them, but it was not the same semen found inside the body, leading them to believe that there was probably another person and that person was her killer weird and gross all at the same time exactly but if you remember our first story with um harvey miguel robinson mm-hmm. they found like that he had like masturbated over yeah where he yeah murdered people gross so not completely uncommon earlier that day she showed up for work at the grocery store uh, where she worked until about 1 p.m and then after that she was supposed to go to her her college which is Middle Tennessee State University, to talk to someone about her grades, but she never showed up. Hmm. She was supposed to go over to her grandmother's house after that and go swimming, which also didn't happen. Police were later able to find her car, which was still near the grocery store, which was quite far away from where they found her body. The only thing of interest they could find in her car was a hair that didn't belong to her. Okay. They also found dirt in the wheels of the car that was consistent with samples of the dirt they found on the crime scene. So it would seem that the killer moved her car back Hmm. near the store. This is where I have to say science is amazing because I would never think to analyze some dirt and get that much information out of it. I'm definitely using that in one of my novels now. Yeah. The police began talking to people she knew to get a sense of what she had been doing, you know, around the time of her death. And there were, they were able to suss out that she had gone to the movies with her friend Dan Goodwin a bit before the murder. Like, I think it was like five days before the murder. Okay. I was like, she worked and went to the movies all the same day. No. (laughs) He had been a good friend of hers, and at her funeral, he promised her mom that he'd help find her killer. Now, after hearing this, my brain immediately was going back to the murder of Skylar Neese and saying, oh, God, he's going to be the killer, isn't he? Mm -hmm, Right? I would totally jump there, too. Yeah. Well, since Forensic Files is making up the bulk of my source for this week, since the internet didn't have a lot on this, and he's not wearing an orange jumpsuit, I think we're in the clear. Thank God. 
question mark yeah it's sad that i couldn't find too much elsewhere on the investigation side of things online but i still just really wanted to tell this story because after finding out about it it just seemed too interesting not to cover another thing police were able to gather about her whereabouts was that she had been seen at a nightclub dancing with an unknown man the night before she was murdered okay Obviously, the police wanted to know who this guy was, so they interviewed the most likely person, someone she had already had a romantic relationship with in high school, a guy named Kyle Gilly. Kyle was known to be sort of jealous, so that also put him at the top of the suspect list. Mm -hmm. Turns out that he had an alibi for the night, though, and his stepdad said that he had been home all night. So they figured, there goes one suspect. We have no idea who else to talk to. Where do we go from here? Well, they get a call from a woman in Nashville saying that she was date-raped by a guy named John Taylor and that he had said something about Laura's murder during the attack, basically threatening to do to her what he did to Laura. Oh, gross. What an asshole. Yeah. So they talked to him and said that he said that none of it happened. But the police, not wanting to you know, take that at face value, mm-hmm. checked him out and saw that he was also a student at MTSU alongside Laura. They were also able to find out that he ran in the same or similar circles with them both going to the same frat parties and even attending the same gym, or since this was the 80s, a health club. (laughs) They were also able to ascertain that he had a history of violence toward women and that he was even in town on the day that she was murdered. I hate this guy already. Yeah, I don't like him very much either. They were able to get a hair sample to run against the hair found in her car, and it was a match. But with DNA testing being what it was back then, they still didn't know for certain that it was his. It was just similar. Right, because this is still like 1984, 85 now. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the jeans that they had found were not the right size to fit him. They were an astounding 3036. Those are hard to find, aren't they? Yeah. Like my... I always hear people complaining about finding jeans that are long enough when they have like a 30, 30 Ex- inch waist. Exactly. My biggest question here is where the hell did this guy buy jeans? <laughs> if you aren't familiar with the way that men's jean sizes work, it's a lot less arbitrary than women's sizes. Nicole, do you have any idea why women's sizes are like two, four, six, eight, ten? Oh, because in the U.S. we have this thing called vanity sizing? Uh, well, yeah, vanity sizing is in men's jeans too, trust me, even though they do have actual waist sizes. Yeah. But it just, it's stupid. I concur. Yeah. Men's jeans go by the waist and the inseam. So this guy has something near a 30-inch waist and a 36 inseam. So he's very tall and very thin. That's not a size that you can find in most stores. I should take when I'm at my quote-unquote default weight <laughs> a 30-34. But they don't even usually make those, so I have to settle for a 30-32, which is usually slightly short on me. Mm-hmm. So where did this guy buy these freaking jeans? That is a mystery that we still have not solved to this day, just so you guys know. Some mysteries are always left unsolved. Yeah, even. I guess. The police moved on to other people since there wasn't enough evidence to definitively tie this guy to the uh, to the murder. And they actually looked into over 100 other people. I don't even think that I know 100 people. So that's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's, a, that's a huge suspect pool. Yeah. The case ended up going cold for nearly 20 years. And once a case has gone cold, it's nearly impossible to solve. If they say that most crimes are solved within the first 48 hours, just imagine what 20 years does to a case. So Dan Goodwin, the friend that I mentioned earlier, never gave up on the case and actually began a career with the police force after this and was eventually assigned this cold case, 
which is kind of incredible. That is incredible. Yeah. He started off as like a journalist Mm -hmm. and then moved into like actual police work. He said that he did not join the police force for this case, but he was definitely glad that he got the case. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. When he got a hold of this case, it was the year 2000. So it's 16 years later. Okay. DNA testing had really advanced in that amount of time. So they were able to test every last bit of DNA evidence found in this case again. They also had a new lead from a student at Oakland High School who was heard talking about how his father had killed a girl and thrown her body in the quarry. Is this really how students talk with each other? Oh, your dad robbed a bank? That's nothing. My dad kills people. (laughs) Like, what? Dumbasses. But good dumbasses in this case, I guess, because that developed a lead. A break in the case. (laughs) Uh, It turned out that the kid's dad was named David Patterson, and he did have an assault on his record, but by the time this information had come to light, Patterson was already dead. So unless our listeners want to whip out those Ouija boards, I don't really think that he's going to be real talkative. He was actually shot to death, and I don't have the details on that really, though. So I don't know what happened. These violent delights meet violent ends. I know. Unfortunately, this lead ended up turning up nothing, and neither did John Taylor's DNA when they retested his as well. So Dan Goodwin even gave his own DNA to be tested against so they could officially rule him out as a suspect as well. They decided to go over everything once more, and after going through some old notes, they found that a witness had seen Kyle Gilley, the ex-boyfriend of Laura's from high school, driving her car down the road half a mile from where Laura had been found. What? Yep. But he he was at home, according to his stepdad. Mm -hmm. She was able to identify both him and the car from a photo lineup. I don't know about you, but I think that's a huge thing to have overlooked for 16 years that someone's alibi did not check out. Yeah, especially one of the first people you talked to. Exactly. Yeah, he was like their main suspect. Mm. And just to take that at face value and not dig into it is fucking miscarriage of justice. This blew Kyle's alibi to shreds, obviously, so they checked out his background more, and they found out that during the time that Kyle and Laura had dated, he had been physically abusive toward her and had on different occasions gotten mad at her and banged her head into lockers or cars or whatever was readily available. Oh, my God. Yeah, he had even broken her front teeth before. That's so... And in high school, no less. That's so fucked up. Kyle was 6'2", and those jeans they found would have fit him at the time. They still had the jeans, and they looked over them again, and surely enough, there was blood on them that was the result of medium-velocity impact spatter, which, in layman's terms, is blood spatter consistent with blunt weapons. Okay. These blood stains were above the knee, meaning the killer was kneeling at the time of the attack, which, oddly enough, I said right along with my TV when doing these notes. <laughs> God, I wish I hadn't have, wouldn't have to go through all the boring stuff to become a detective. <laughs> because <laughs> I just I really just want to solve murders, guys. I just want to solve murders. They ran yet more DNA tests and were able to deduce that the blood was indeed Laura's. So that should be a shock to exactly no one. So at this point, they track Kyle down and find him living in Florida, of course. And he had been divorced twice. He'd gained quite a bit of weight and has a creepy mustache now. This is the guy you go to your high school reunions to see. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Oh, God. And because Florida, he had a police record which included such hits as aggravated sexual assault, attempted burglary, 
and resisting arrest. Wow. He is Florida man. (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) So he was also probably smuggling heroin in his anus and denied the syringes were his. I believe it. The people listening to this podcast backwards have no idea what we're talking about, but that's just fine. I believe it. (laughs) (laughs) So he admitted the jeans were his, but said that he was nowhere near the scene of the crime at the time. Wait, how did your jeans get there then, Kyle? I don't know. Did she like keep a pair of his jeans with her for good luck or something? I don't know who he thought he was fooling with that shit. Maybe he understood that there was this thing called boyfriend jeans and just didn't really know what they were. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, <laughs> he wanted a lawyer at this point after they're like, dude, come on. Just no. So they were able to get saliva from him with a court order, I might add. So he was not cooperative. And it was a match for the DNA on the jeans. Mm-hmm. Best part of this is that he shows up to court in jeans and a striped T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. The next time he was in court, I guess he got the hint because he was wearing an actual suit that time. But the first time, yeah, striped T-shirt and jeans. <sighs> so the only real question left is why did he kill her? I have a theory. I have a theory. Oh, let's hear your theory. I think he caught her with somebody else. He was probably stalking her. That is a very good theory. Laura was a year older than him. And when he when she went off to college, she was meeting a lot of new people. And he was very controlling and wanted her attentions to still be completely focused on him. Her family and friends kept telling her to kick him to the curb. But she was scared to break it off with him completely. Her mother even wanted her to get a restraining order against him. Because when she went away to college, he would stalk her there. Yeah, for sure. Like, I totally understand why she's like, well, maybe he'll like I, I, if I was like a teenager, I'd be super nervous to break up with somebody like that. Yeah, exactly. Because he's violent. and evil. Yeah, I think that's always the worst when you hear about um, abusive relationships between teenagers, because you're already dealing with so much and yeah. understanding how to be an adult and grow into yourself and own your own power. Exactly. That it's ugh, so tragic. They think that Kyle saw her with somebody else that night at the nightclub, like Nicole, you suggested got jealous, invited her to go with him to talk the next day, and then murdered her for being with someone new. Gross. So, in September of 2006, Kyle was finally tried for Laura's murder. During this time, they tried to say that since the semen found inside Laura was not a match, that Kyle could just not possibly ever be the killer, and that the person that whose semen was inside her was the real killer. Mm-hmm. And he happened to get a pair of Kyle's jeans to wear... Just to throw people off the track. I mean, you know, come on. A pair of his jizzy jeans, basically. Yeah, it's a stupid thing, but all you need to do is provide reasonable doubt. So, I mean, I guess, I don't know. But the jury thankfully didn't buy it, and he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. His first parole hearing will be in 2042. Good. He tried to appeal the ruling in 2008, but was denied. There was a long list of grounds for appeal, but they were all too long to list here uh, a lot of it just sounded like bullshit anyway yeah well i'm sure he probably thought or his lawyer probably thought they had a reasonably good chance considering it was cold for so long yeah exactly so i mean i just really wanted to cover this story because i love cold cases that finally get solved and i think it's amazing what these advances in science can now make all this possible yeah i totally agree it's, it's like the most satisfying. Yes. Because there's so many cold cases out there. Exactly. And when one gets solved, you're right. It's like, oh, thank God. There's so many cold cases. There's so many rape kits that haven't even been tested. Like, it's obscene. 
yeah, it's a whole other, yeah. whole other long diatribe exactly. topic. Exactly. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so this one was especially interesting just because in my opinion, the police did just a really horrible job the first time around. How did you miss something that major? It just doesn't make any sense. The only thing I can think of is that they were kind of at a loss. They didn't know what to do. And there was also the idea of like, who else was she seeing? Yeah. Because there's still that mystery man. Exactly. And I think that's probably what they focused on because that's just sometimes how the brain works. Even though most people we know are killed by people they know. Yeah. Yeah. People they know. Close associates. So. That's immediately why um, I went to um, the guy that solved the case first. I was just like, like, oh, well. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, my my brain automatically goes there because I've been conditioned to think anyone close to you is probably the killer. Anyway, I'm just glad that the mystery was solved and Laura's family can finally have some justice and closure. The only real mystery left now is uh, if my what my word count was for this week because my laptop took a crap on me and I had to use my phone instead. Well, don't forget about the biggest mystery of all. My sources? Well, I was going to say where you find those 30 by 36 inch Oh, jeans. yes. That is another <laughs> mystery that has not yet been solved. So if anyone knows where to find 30, 36 jeans, please write to us. Uh, my sources for this week were an episode of Forensic Files called Gene Pool, spelled J-E-A-N. Ooh, Forensic File. They love their puns. They titles. love their puns, I know. Like dad jokes. Um, findagrave.com, several articles from murfreesboropost.com, findlaw.com, and wgnsradio.com. Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that story, Eden. Absolutely. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I guess we'll take a short break. And eat my homemade peanut butter pie. Oh, so good. (laughs) And then we'll be back all sugared up and I can tell you my story for this week, which I think you'll like. It's different. I tried to find something that was very Tennessean. Yeah. And I hope I did a good job. I'm sure you did. You always do. You'll let me know. You haven't let me down yet. All right. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, Hey guys. guys, Eden Eden and and Nicole Nicole here. here. We wanted to let you know about the second annual Pocono Witches Festival, where Roadside Horror Show will be having their very first live show. Come join us at Slippery Rock Resort in Lake Harmony, Pennsylvania for a spooky yet funny show in a haunted location. You can experience all the beauty of Lake Harmony while getting your spooky on with several events, hosted by our friend, the Pocono Witch, E. Massey. Enjoy a spooktacular event that's the third largest of its kind in the tri-state area. Take in a seance with medium Glenda Dawson. Or enjoy a paranormal investigation with Mark Keyes from TV's Paranormal 911 and Virginia Rose Centrillo from TV's The Haunted. Hungry? We've got you covered with a psychic breakfast. And you can finish it all up with a masquerade ball and maybe take part in a Samhain ritual. You can also enjoy a special guest presenter, author Christopher Penzak, as well as a live concert with Metamorph. It's all happening October 23rd to October 25th at beautiful Split Rock Resort. All of those are ticketed events, but will be at the Magical Market on Saturday, October 24th, which is completely free and open to the public. You can find nearly 100 unique vendors with all their own goodies. And of course, you'll get get to to see see us us for free. free. So come down to the Split Rock Resort and show us some love. Tickets are available now at PoconoWitchesFestival.com, where you can also find more information about the events. That's PoconoWitchesFestival.com. Come tell us your stories and listen as we tell a few of our own at our very first ever live show. Until then, guys, creep creep on, creeping on. And we're back. We're back. Nicole. Yes, Eden. 
So I'm very interested in this story now. You made some big promises. I, I'd always try. I tried to deliver. Hopefully. Just like someone on the campaign trail. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully I live up to those promises. Unlike people on the campaign trail. <laughs> so today we are heading to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. I know of that one. Mm-hmm. Located in southeastern Tennessee, Chattanooga rests along the Tennessee River border with Georgia. With a population of 183,000 people, it's Tennessee's fourth largest city and is the seat of Hamilton County. Nice. Nestled in the Ridge and Valley Appalachians, the area has been inhabited by various Native American tribes since the Paleolithic era. So we're talking like eight to 10,000 years ago. Wow. Yeah. It's always been a place where people lived. Yeah. Now, these groups included the Mississippian people, the Muscogee Creek people, and of course, the Cherokee. The Cherokees actually inhabited the area when the first European settlers started arriving in the late 18th century. So this is where Cher lived. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Every time, every time you make a Cher joke, I can't help but giggle. (laughs) Just get all excited. Sorry. (laughs) I watched that movie recently and I was like, it's so good, but so bad. It's so terrible. I saw it because it was on TV once and I was bored. It's so bad. I'm slightly curious. Love it so much. Anyway. In fact, uh, Chattanooga, the name, comes from a Native American Crete phrase that means rock rising to a point, which is pretty appropriate given the geography around Chattanooga, right? Plus, like, Chattanooga, how can that not be an Indian name, right? Absolutely. Just, like, half the stuff around here, Nesquahoning. Oh, I know. I love watching people from the Southwest. Try to pronounce our... Yeah, anything from, like, the Northeast where it's, like, an Indian name. And it's like, no, all those Qs are not Ks. They are Qs. My favorite one... (laughs) To hear people not from the area pronounced as Skookal. Skookal, yeah. Like the nice, like, Dutch, like, okay. They're just like, So, funny names aside, by 1816, Ross's Landing was established by John Ross as a trading post between the White and Cherokee settlements. Ross himself was actually part Scottish and part Cherokee. And he would actually go on to become the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation later in life. Wow. Yeah, kind of cool. And the trading post he established would eventually grow into present-day Chattanooga. Okay. By the 1830s, the U.S. government had begun to start its forced removal of Native Americans from their ancestral homelands, a.k.a. the Trail of Tears. Yes. And One of the most awful events ever. Yeah, I kind of got real deep into that rabbit hole, and it was very depressing. It's kind of awful. And really horrible. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because Ross's Landing, which was this kind of meeting point for Cherokee and European culture, became a departure point for the Trail of Tears. Yeah. So like in the 1830s, 1836, 37, they started marching Cherokees to Ross's Landing and putting them on boats and sending them on their way out west. By 1839... Ross's Landing was fully incorporated as the city of Chattanooga. Okay. The city grew rapidly because water shipping routes and railroad lines were established uh, in the 1840s and 50s, and it kind of became this gateway city. Uh, It's actually known as the city where, quote, corn meets cotton. All right. Well, it's because Chattanooga is considered this, like, gateway between the mountain states of southern Appalachia where you grow a lot of corn, where you get, like, really cool things like corn whiskey and my favorite bourbon. And the Deep South, where more often you'd find things like cotton and indigo. Yeah. Now, during the Civil War, like we mentioned in our intro, tons of battles were fought in Tennessee. Chattanooga was definitely a center for some of these battles. A lot of battles happened around Chattanooga, mostly because it was a major shipping hub for the Confederacy. And it was a 
huge focus of the Union's campaign to win back the South. After the Civil War into the 20th century, Chattanooga continued to grow, and it became a crucial location for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, Are you familiar with that at all? A little, not a lot. I was in the same boat, so I did a little little bit more digging and research so I could understand it better, and it's kind of interesting. The Tennessee Valley Authority is basically a federally owned corporation that was started in 1933 when FDR signed a law that brought it into being, and it focuses on limiting the devastation caused by the Great Depression. So the Tennessee Valley Authority focuses on providing improvements to navigation, flood control along the Tennessee River, helping to generate regional electricity, uh, manufacturing, and just overall economic development in the Tennessee Valley. Okay. Even today, the city of Chattanooga is still considered a transit hub because not only is it still really accessible by river and still has lots of freight rail lines, but it also has a bunch of interstate highways that run through it or near it. Nice. So it's still growing today. Uh, Chattanooga has a really diverse economy because of this. It's a mixture of manufacturing, shipping, and of course, service industries. Several prominent businesses are based in Chattanooga, including McKee Foods, the makers of Little Debbie. Oh, okay. Uh, Access America Transit, the National Model Railroad Association, and the Chattanooga Bakery, a.k.a. the makers of one of my all-time favorite snack cakes, the Moon Pie. Oh, the Moon Pie. I love Moon Pies. See, I never knew that the South had like such a big history with railroads until doing this podcast. I know, right? It's like you think about railroad travel, but I always think of it in terms of like like New England to out West. Exactly. Um, Other large companies that also have distribution centers or manufacturing or operational centers in Chattanooga include some big names that we're familiar with, like Amazon, Cigna, AT&T, T-Mobile, Plantronics, Ferrero Rocher Candies, DuPont, and USB. Okay. So a lot of of big names. Yeah, a lot of big names. And it makes sense because it's, you know, the gateway where where corn meets cotton. It's a gateway drug. (laughs) A gateway city. Uh, When you visit Chattanooga, and I highly recommend you do, you're surrounded by this incredible combination of the scenic Tennessee River and the beautiful Appalachian Mountains, and the city itself has lots of activities and history that you can enjoy. You can check out the Tennessee Aquarium, which is the world's largest freshwater aquarium, which is fantastic. It's awesome. Uh, You can explore the outdoors at Lookout Mountain or the Tennessee River Valley Gorge Park. I love River Gorges. They're really yeah, cool, really wonderful neat. hiking because it's always a little bit cooler. So even yeah. on hot days, you're like, refreshed. You can also venture underground because Tennessee has lots of caves and caverns you can explore. And outside Chattanooga, you can visit Ruby Falls, which is the tallest and deepest underground waterfall open to the public in the U.S. Huh. That's cool. Get your splunk on. Yeah. Now, if you're a museum nerd like I am, you'll love Chattanooga's museums. They cover pretty much every topic you'd think. Everything from the Civil War, 20th century manufacturing history, American art, and of course, Native American culture and history. Then there's other wackier museums like the classic Arcade Pinball Museum. And of course, the famous Chattanooga Choo Choo Museum. Oh, right. (laughs) So another awesome thing that Chattanooga has going for it is its revitalized riverfront. They have a 13-mile paved river walk that's filled with restaurants, shops, attractions, and riverboats. Nice. It's along the Riverwalk where today's regal subject used to spend her time. Ooh. Join me for the Tale of Two Queens, the Delta Queen Steamboat, and Captain Mary Becker Green. Oh, right. This sounds cool. 
I really liked being like, two queens, yeah! <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> okay, first queen, Mary Becker Green. This lady was pretty badass. She was born in Ohio in 1867, and Mary Becker married a man named Gordon Green in 1890. Uh, Green was a Ohio r- River steamboat captain who basically lived his entire life on the water, going from the Ohio River in Cincinnati in the north and then taking the Mississippi and going all the way as far south as New Orleans. He would cart you know, cargo and passengers safely year-round to those destinations. Mary decided that she didn't want to spend her life away from her new husband, because, I mean, what newlywed does want that. Yeah. So she set up a home aboard her husband's ship, the Henry K. Bedford. All right. Now, Mary quickly became Green's right-hand man. Woman? We'll go with first mate, right? That works. That works, yeah. The best mate from what I can tell. She learned to navigate the channels of the Ohio River and how to handle the steamboat in her own right. Nice. By 1896, Mary decided it was time for her to apply for her own captain's license. So she did that in Ohio. And by winter, she was fully authorized to pile a boat on the river and was the only woman captain piloting boats on the Ohio River at the time. That's pretty cool. Yeah, she's a badass trailblazer. And even crazier, around this time, they started having kids. Okay. So she had three children with Gordon, um, all from what I could tell, while she was still actively assisting him as a co-pilot on the Ohio River. Wow. They ended up buying a second riverboat, which Mary took over full-time as the captain. Very nice. Uh, So if you couldn't probably tell, Mary was pretty much a go-getter, very feisty. I would assume. (laughs) Yep. And... She was still a woman, though, so she wouldn't wear a captain's hat. She said it was too masculine for her. And more often than not, when they would pilot through cities, she would take the night shift, so not to cause a ruckus when they would pull into various ports. Because they would be like, gasp, a woman. A woman, how dare she? (laughs) Basically, yes. However, during this time, she started to gain this reputation as a super competent pilot. She was known for piloting her steamboats through turbulent weather, even going so far as to safely steer her boat out of a cyclone. She survived several near misses on the water, including the sudden explosion of nitroglycerin that they were hauling. Wow. She even garnered a little bit of notoriety and fame around the turn of the century. First, she beat her husband in a publicized steamboat race to see who could get from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati the fastest. Oh, thank God you finished that sentence. I thought she beat her husband. (laughs) Like, spousal abuse is not cool, guys. Just beat him doing what they both did for a living. It's fine. Okay, that's fine. And again, in 1904, she piloted their newest boat called the Greenland into the St. Louis Fair. So, Lady Captain arrives, and it's the fair to end all fairs. Of course. Uh, So, Mary didn't let this acclaim go to waste. She used it to help build the steamboat line that her and her husband were actively growing. It was called the Green Line, named after themselves. And they started to build this reputation as not just a quality cargo hauler, but also a delightful passenger transportation. Nice. She was very charming naturally, had a super enthusiastic, energetic personality. A lot of people said that she made the experience for passengers feel like home on the river. And because she created such a delightful cruising environment, the Green Line ended up selling out their passenger tickets whenever people found out that Mary was going to be the captain. Huh. Unfortunately, her husband did suddenly die in 1927, but that didn't stop Mary. She kept the steamboat line running with the help of her sons. By then, she was affectionately nicknamed Ma Green by most employees and passengers. 
and she continued to pilot several of the ships in the family's line for the next two decades, including the second queen of my story. Oh, okay. Now, the Delta Queen is a stern-wheeled steamboat. And I've heard of it before. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. The Delta Queen is actually a, one of two boats that were constructed at the same time. Her, her partner or sister boat is the Delta King, okay, yeah. which I had heard of. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize there were two. In terms of physicality, the Delta Queen is 280 feet long and 58 feet wide. She weighs 1,650 tons and can carry 176 passengers overnight. She has these massive steam engines that power a stern-mounted paddle wheel in the back. So it's pretty much everything you picture when you picture a Mississippi paddle boat, right? Yeah. Whenever I think of boats with uh, queen names, I always think of the episode of Archer where they're talking about the movie The African Queen. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, Audrey Hepburn, she was the African queen. The white queen of <laughs> Africa. It was the boat, dumbass. <laughs> the Delta Queen herself is a pretty sturdy queen. She is one of the last surviving steam-powered overnight passenger vessels still sailing up and down the Mississippi and was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1988. Construction on the Delta Queen began in 1924 by the William Denny and Brothers Shipyard in Dumbarton, Scotland, where they built the hull, the first two decks, and the steam engines. The parts were then shipped to Stockton, California, and were assembled by the California Transit Company in 1926. Now, the Delta Queen and her sister ship, the Delta King, were put into service between San Francisco and Sacramento. They started hauling passengers and cargo in 1927. At the time, the ships were considered the most lavishly appointed and expensive sternwheeled passenger boats ever commissioned, earning them the nickname the Million Dollar Boats. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So it is literally everything you think of. When you're like, Mark Twain, steamboat, luxury travel. Yep, that was the Delta Queen. By the 1940s, new highways in California proved to be a lot more efficient for moving people and cargo between Sacramento and California. So the Delta Queen was purchased by another company, the Isbranston Steamship Lines, and started service out of New Orleans. Okay. Then, during World War II... The boat was requisitioned by the U.S. Navy and taken back to San Francisco. Christened the USS Delta Queen and painted Battleship Gray, the horror. (laughs) She was used to transport wounded men from ocean-going vessels in the San Francisco Bay to area hospitals. Well, at least that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Serving her country like a good queen should. Now, despite this dreadful paint job... The Delta Queen was still a very beautiful vessel and even took delegates who were assembled to form the United Nations during their initial conference in San Francisco. And she would do sightseeing tours all around the Bay. Awesome. By 1946, the Greens decided to purchase the Delta Queen since she was no longer commissioned to the U.S. Navy. And Mary, who is now 79 years old, began to co-captain the pilot with her son, Tom. Mary also claimed cabin 109 as her home and set up the cabin with her personal furnishings. And that's the one that's going to be really haunted later on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know how this works, guys. <laughs> We've been around the block a few times now. Now, despite being a luxury ship, no alcohol was served aboard the Delta Queen or any other Green Line ships. That's because Mary was a staunch supporter of temperance and didn't allow liquor service on any ship that she owned. Killjoy. Yeah, well, there's beautiful scenery. You don't need that booze. <laughs> I don't think she prevented passengers from bringing their own liquor online on, on board. Okay. It was just that they didn't sell it. Gotcha. 
Then, on April 22, 1949, after helping her son dock the Delta Queen in Cincinnati, Mary Ma Green passed away in cabin 109 at the age of 80. Oh, well, I mean, she lived a reasonably long life. Yeah, reasonably so. long, adventurous life, doing what she loved, which is kind of kind of rad. That is amazing. I wish I could do what I loved. Hashtag goals. Yes. The Delta Queen continued to sail the Mississippi, Ohio, and Tennessee rivers until 2008. During this time, many passengers traveled aboard the Majestic Queen, including three U.S. presidents, Herbert Hoover, Harry Truman, and Jimmy Carter. Nice. Yeah, so very much a still a luxury passenger cruise line. Then from 2009 to 2014, the Delta Queen was permanently docked in Chattanooga, where she served as a boutique hotel where guests could enjoy dining, a lounge, live period music, and theatrical performances. That's really awesome. That sounds fun. Right? I'd I would go. Right? That's yeah. a cool-ass hotel to stay in. Uh, in 2015, she was purchased by the newly formed Delta Queen Steamboat Company, which was a group of supporters who wanted to refurbish the vessel to her former glory and start offering overnight cruises along the Mississippi again. Sweet. Uh, repairs in the Delta Queen are still underway. They are basically restoring her to her prime 1920s glory. And she's expected to start service for passengers in late 2020. Now that you know about these two fabulous queens, it's time for what you really want to hear about, the ghosts. Now, passengers and employees have reported unusual activity on the Delta Queen as far back as 1950. Wow. A lot of the hauntings seem to be tied to Captain Mary Green. When did she die again? 1949. Okay. So like right Right after. after. It actually all started in a very typical way, as we know. Ghosts do not like renovations. No, not at all. And shortly after Mary passed away, her son Tom decided that he wanted to renovate part of the Delta Queen to create a passenger lounge slash saloon. Okay. So a few nights after the renovation completed, but before the first alcoholic drinks were actually served in the lounge, there was an accident. A small tugboat crashed into the Delta Queen at the closest bulkhead to the new saloon. When the crew managed to separate the two vessels and assess the damage, they were startled to see the name on the tugboat. You want to guess what it was? Mm. It was Mary B. Mary B. Which was actually Captain Mary's maiden name. Her maiden name was Becker. Oh, that's right. Okay. So she was a Mary B as well. Maybe she was tapping into her uh, fellow Mary Bs in the river. Who knows? To let her son know that booze was not okay. <laughs> After this, that's when people started seeing Mary's ghost for the first time. Okay, I could see why. Mm-hmm. Passengers and crew would see an elderly woman who matched Mary's description walking along the decks, almost like she was still inspecting the boat. They'd even see her passing through the new saloon. Several musicians who performed on the boat reported seeing a woman dressed in 1930s clothing observing the rehearsals. When the musicians would look up, the woman would, the woman would suddenly disappear. So pretty typical there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, another musician shared a story about how he was in the rehearsal space and he noticed that there was an older woman in a green 1930s gown watching him. And when he turned to address her, she started walking away. So he followed the woman out of the lounge and into the hallway. And as she rounded the corner, he quickly followed, but the woman had vanished. Huh. So Mary definitely haunts this boat. I would say so. And yeah. she kind of <laughs> appears almost as like as the guardian of the boat in some ways. And the anti-liquor person. And the anti-liquor person. I think she's gotten over it a little bit in, yeah. in the you know, 50, 50, 60 years she's been <laughs> hanging out there. But there are certain people who work on the Delta Queen that she forms a special connection with. And they're generally the folks who guide the boat safely along the river. 
one of those special connections was with Captain Mike Williams. Back in 1982, when Williams was still the first mate of the Delta Queen, he was left aboard alone one night while the ship was docked for repairs. Basically, the guy they left behind to make sure everything is a-okay while the rest of the crew enjoyed some leave. Yeah. One night, Williams awoke to an urgent whispering in his ear. He was confused because he was all alone on the ship, so he got up quickly to see what the heck that was. Yeah. Suddenly, he heard the boiler door slamming. He raced to the boiler room and found that it was empty and that it was filling with water from a burst pipe. He was able to make emergency repairs that actually saved the Delta Queen from taking on serious water and sustaining major damage. Okay. Captain Williams credits Mary's intervention for shaving the ship and says that his next encounter with Mary's ghost also changed his life for the better. In 1985, a woman named Myra Fuge, very interesting name. Yeah, I'd say. I've never heard that one before. (laughs) She joined the Delta Queen crew. Uh, One night, Myra was working late and received a call from room 109. The elderly woman who called said she was ill and very cold and very much like a blanket delivered to the cabin. Very concerned for this ill passenger, (laughs) Mary asked Captain Williams to check on the passenger in cabin 109. However, when Williams arrived, he found the cabin empty. Of course. Kind of saw that one coming. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Myra spotted, quote, a misty face of an elderly woman looking at her from the deck below. Creepy. Mm Mm-hmm. She thought, oh, God, it's this elderly woman, and she's ill, and she might be disoriented. I don't want anything bad to happen to her while she's wandering the deck. I better go check on her. So Myra ventures out, searches the entire deck for the woman, and can't find her. Giving up on her search, she returns to her post. She finds Captain Williams waiting for her. He tells her, "Uh, Captain 109 is unoccupied. Myra was super rattled by this info and mentioned that she pretty much thinks she saw a ghost on the deck. Yeah. Captain William, of course, is familiar with this. So he I was come- about to say, do they know the story? Do they know what, whose room it yeah, was? He knew the story. He he knew uh, her sons, and she he knew the story of how people see Mary's ghost. So he comforts Myra and offers to walk her back to her cabin because she's so like freaked out. On the way back, they actually pass a portrait of Mary Green, and Myra recognizes her as the woman she saw on deck. Oh, damn. Captain Williams goes on and tells her all about the Delta Queen's former captain, and that actually, yeah, cabin 109, that's where she lived. Wow. After such a weird shared night, the two became friends and eventually fell in love. That's really cool. So she helped them get together, I mm-hmm. guess. Both Captain Williams and Myra uh, credit Mary's spirit with playing matchmaker that night. Uh, they were soon married and they started a family. And they both believe that Mary continues to watch over them and the Delta Queen to this day. That's really cool. Yeah. So Eden, would you go on a river cruise on the Delta Queen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there doesn't seem to be anything bad. Right? On it, Mary seems pretty cool. Maybe she'll help me find love of my own. I know. Maybe, you know, she has a sixth sense for these things. Yeah, apparently. I I thought that was super charming, and it's like the first time in a while that I've come across a haunting that is so delightful. That is, yeah. It was fun. It was lighthearted. It was, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything I want out of a riverboat cruise. (laughs) It wasn't like, and this ghost eats your face off. (laughs) (laughs) And then she shoves your face in that paddle wheel. (laughs) And then turns an army of turtles against you. (laughs) The turtle queen. The Florida Man Ghost. <laughs> uh, my sources for this story were Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, Tennessee Encyclopedia, TripAdvisor, VisitChattanooga.com, the blog Seeking Ghost, Quimby's Guide to Cruising, Chattanooga Times Free Press articles, and of course, DeltaQueen.com. Very nice. I like that. Thank you. You're welcome. So... I guess that brings us to the end of our episode today. That does. 
Um, so guys, how you doing with uh, thinking about coming to see us live? You doing it? You better do it. Come on, you know you want to. It's free. And it's an excuse to get the heck out of the house. Yes, exactly. And who knows, maybe this whole horrible pandemic bullcrap will be over soon. Fingers crossed, right? Yeah, exactly. If not, just wear your mask. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, if you want to get in contact with us and tell us how we're doing or just say hi, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram or as Roadside Horror on Twitter. You can also visit our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. And of course, we'd like to thank E. Massey for our wonderful music and Yox Rocks Design for our killer logo. Until next time, guys. Creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on.